Clutter is not just the stuff on your floor. It's anything that stands between you and the life you want to be living. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear, dear shit shows. For any new listeners, my name is Andrea. I am a total shit show. I am an adult child, and I have also consumed four bagels in the past 20 hours. <laughs> So I'm in New York with my mom. We're going to the U.S. Open. This is our third time doing this trip. And if you did not know this about me, I am a total bagel whore. And anytime I come to New York, uh, the goal is always A-M-B-A-P. A-M-B-A-P, as many bagels as possible. And I'm starting out strong. You know, I've never done a shit show Saturday, so I realize that I have not had the opportunity to answer the questions, like the favorite carb question, but I will start with the first question is, what song do you want played when you walk into a room? Easy answer, Evil Woman by ELO. Uh, Question two, favorite carb. This is a struggle for me, folks. This is a toss-up between bagels and pizza. And I've been thinking about this for the past little while, like gun to the head. I think I'm going to have to go pizza, folks. I think I'm going to have to go pizza. Uh, Cheese. Caramelized onion cheddar from Trader Joe's is where it's at. Uh, For a more everyday cheese, I, I would go smoke Gouda. And then condiment. No questions asked. Ketchup. Ketchup is the king. I sell merch. Ketchup is the king merch. You can buy that in my in my store. So today we are diving deep with John Ergy. <laughs> so his name is John Steen. He is an energy healing practitioner, and his business name is John Ergy, which I'm kind of obsessed with. So he is a fellow shit show. He is a fellow adult child. And this is a really awesome conversation with him. So I was connected to John through another Andrea, another Andrea who pronounces her name the correct way. So Andrea is a professional organizer and I hired her to clean out organize my apartment back in San Francisco. I was trying to think when was this? I'm pretty sure that it was in between Brian number one and Brian number two. So I've shared this before that one of the ways that my adult child disease manifests, uh, one of the ways that my, the unmanageability aspect of this disease manifested for me was in clutter and disorganization in my apartment. Now I wouldn't say that I was like hoarder status, but There definitely was one uh, closet, like the small closet within, in my apartment was like total hoarder status. Like if you, you couldn't open it up without things falling out of it. And then, you know, drawers, like it looked okay from the outside, you know, but if you opened, (laughs) if you opened anything up, 
It was just a total nightmare. And it was so stressful and it just really reinforced a lot of, a lot of that shame. And so I knew that, and I, you know, I've been telling myself for forever, like, okay, we're going to clean this shit up. We're going to get organized. And I finally came to my senses and was like, you're never going to fucking do this by yourself. And so let's hire somebody to come in here and help you out. So I hired Andrea and she was absolutely amazing. Her and this other woman, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, They came over and they just went through everything, like every single inch, nook and cranny. They took everything with them, which was amazing. So the shit that needed to be donated, the shit that needed to be thrown out, everything. And then on top of that, she organized everything for me. So she even used like little sticky tape and she would write on it like, this is where your shirts go or this is where your... um, I can't remember, but there was just sticky notes everywhere so I could keep things in the right place. And oh my gosh, like the, the amount of weight that was lifted off of me after hiring her to do that and walking into a neat and tidy and organized uh, apartment was, oh, it was like the best damn feeling in the world. And I feel like for everybody listening right now, as adult children, I feel like we typically fall into one of two camps. We have the super neat, tidy, organized type, or we have um, my breed of an adult child, which is the you know disorgan- disorganized and, and cluttery adult child type. And I do want to just briefly touch upon the connection between clutter and trauma. Now, I want to say that not everybody who struggles with clutter has childhood trauma, but I will say for the purposes of anyone listening to this podcast right now, I think that there probably is a connection between your clutter and childhood trauma. So there are there's several factors going on here, many of which are interconnected. And the first piece that I want to touch on is the impact that trauma has on our prefrontal cortex. So this is the part of our brain that is responsible for executive functioning, which includes organization. Now this is also, you know, part of ADHD. So again, it's like, is this trauma? Is this ADHD? Is this both? But uh, the part of our brain that is responsible for keeping shit organized is not functioning at its highest capacity. So then on top of this, we then have emotional dysregulation. So that is another common symptom of complex PTSD, experiencing intense and sometimes unpredictable or irrational emotions. And so clutter in our living space amplifies this, amplifies these emotional reactions. Uh, It makes us feel overwhelmed. It makes us feel anxious. It makes us feel frustrated. It makes us feel shame. And so those feelings that we experience makes it even more challenging to acknowledge, address, and clean up the clutter. So next we have avoidance, which is another common coping mechanism for people with complex PTSD. So clutter can serve as a physical manifestation of our avoidance. So we may use clutter as a way to distract ourselves from painful feelings. 
And so then we have attachment and loss. So trauma leads to difficulties with attachment and difficulty of letting things go. So we may develop a strong emotional attachment to our possessions, even to shit that has very, very little value, which can make it really difficult to throw things out. And so clutter can provide a, like a false sense of safety and control, even though it's really out of control. (laughs) Um, And then the last thing I want to touch on is just self-care challenge. Maintaining an organized living space is a form of self-care And those of us with complex PTSD often struggle with self-care due to feelings of unworthiness or self-neglect. And so this impacts our living space. You know, I think for me, it is one, the, the prefrontal cortex and just like the, the lack of executive functioning that I was struggling with. And then on top of that, I think it's, it was my, my outsides matching my insides. So my internal feelings of chaos, of low self-worth, of shame being reflected in my external environment. And then that just creates this never ending cycle of more clutter, more shame, more clutter, more shame, which is why I knew I needed to hire somebody because I was not going to be able to hand clean up this shit on my own. So obviously it costs money to do that, but I highly recommend getting somebody to come in and clean that shit out because it literally, it makes such a huge difference to live in a space where you know where things are, where you don't have to worry about when you open up the cabinet or the closet that like a bunch of shit is going to fall onto your face. But what am I saying? Like I still I still can struggle with clutter. Like for example, I check into this hotel yesterday with my mom and I kid you not, it's like within an hour, I like look at the table where all my shit is and it literally looks like there has been a tornado. So still still a work in progress here, but generally speaking I am doing a much better job of keeping shit Um, more organized, less clutter. There are definitely are times where things start to get a little bit out of hand and I will just stop whatever the hell I'm doing and just do a clean sweep, put everything where it needs to go. I mean, here's the number one key folks. And this is what's so hard to do. It's like when you walk in the door before you do anything, you just need to put everything where it belongs. As soon as I walk in the door, can I put my shoes where they need to go? Can I put the trash in the trash? Uh, Can I put my keys back where they belong? If I do that, that's a game changer. And so Andrea is actually in the process of writing a book. I can't remember. She She's writing a book about her journey with cancer, but then I think she's also writing a book about like clutter and trauma. So I keep bugging her. When are you going to come on the damn pod? When are you going to come on the damn pod? She promises promises me that she will eventually. So we will definitely deep dive into this clutter as a trauma response thing in a future episode. So let's get the damn show on the road, shall we? But first let's talk about why you, yes, you need to damn the join shit show. So this is my online community where I host weekly Zoom support groups where you get to connect with an amazing group of shit shows who are just waiting to be your friend, uh, waiting to let you know that, hey, there's nothing inherently wrong with you. You're just an adult child, and guess what? I am too. Again, as I stress, 
This is relational trauma. We heal through safe relationships. This is a place where you can do so. So you, yes, you, you've been waiting to join for forever. There are hundreds of you listening right now that I know are in this camp. How about you just damn the join shit show right now? See link in the show notes. Next, give me a follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at Adult Child Pod. And last but not least, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple, on Spotify. If you're new here, just know that if you don't give me a five-star review, within like your first two weeks of listening. After a month, you're gonna go in to try to find the show and you're not gonna be able to find it anymore. You're not gonna be able to listen anymore. So I highly recommend that you give me that damn five-star rating. Thanks, love you all. The truth of the matter, my dear shit shows, is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now, let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com slash podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength. All right, y'all. Welcome, Mr. Johnergy, aka John Steen, energy healer practitioner. Johnergy is like the shit. I love it. It just makes me. I just want to say Johnergy. <laughs> it's really fun to say. That's great. You know, hi Ashley. Welcome, well, Andrea. Andrea, Ashley. It happens to me all the fucking time. At least you didn't call me Andrea or I would have ended the interview right now. So don't worry. That I know not to do from listening to you for now. (laughs) But Barista at Pete's came up with that name for me. I like, after six months of doing this, I rebranded because he had that name. And I like, no, maybe yes. And I asked a bunch of friends and everyone's like, I love that name. Yes, the shit. Johnergy. Yeah. (laughs) Johnergy here. What was it originally? Energy healing with John. (laughs) <laughs> Boo. Right now, John or Gina. Boring. <laughs> okay, so I thought that this was interesting. When I asked you how you wanted me to introduce you, you said that it's important that I said energy heal. Is it energy healer practitioner or energy healing practitioner? Energy healing practitioner. Healing. And that to not call you an energy healer because... There are ethics involved around that because me as an energy healing practitioner... I'm the person running the energy in a session and the conduit to higher source. And so you, the client, is the one actually doing the healing, self-healing. I'm just the conduit and running the energy. And saying that I'm a healer suggests that I can heal you. Well, shit, you can't. I mean, it's such an interesting practice. Like you just feel so much, right? That like, what is going on here? What was your first, we'll get into like your bottom and and all that, but what was your experience with 
were you exposed to quote unquote energy healing prior to this most recent part of your journey? Six months prior to studying energy healing, I was doing energy healing circles on the free meditation app called Inside Timer. My teacher teaches on that app. What's his, his or her name? His name is Keith Parker with Field Dynamic Healing. And I took that for six months before I decided to take the class. And what just made me decide was probably around two weeks. He was doing something with the lower chakras and I felt joy and I felt peace. And like, what is going on here? And this is just over my phone. And wow. what's really going on here with this? I had been doing it for six months and feeling really well. And when I went to their website to look into it, what had really attracted to me was the self-realization that is involved with their class, because I was really looking for that because I had you know, recently hit my emotional bottom. And that's what I was looking for. What is an energy healing circle on Insight Timer? So Insight Timer is a free meditation. Yeah. So it's just like a, a recording or with live events? They're live events. In October of 2020, the Insight Timer started having teachers live teaching classes. And so it's people all over the world. So you're, you know, maybe a hundred people in the class and the teachers running the energy and you couldn't feel it. You just stumbled upon it? I just stumbled upon it. I was so I, at that time, you know, it was the first year of the pandemic. Everything was shut down. I was at my bottom. I was hanging by a thread. And I went back to my meditation practice in October of 2020. And I was taking four, five, six classes a day, just wow. really mesh myself in meditation and energy. That's amazing. Me. Had you done much meditation prior to that? No, I had started a friend that I worked with when I was going right before, right when I was having a really hard time at my job and she could see that she suggested the app to me. Mm -hmm. And that time I was only meditating early in the morning before I got up to go to work, you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes a day. And I noticed a shift just doing that little and I had tried previous years before, and I just could not sit still. Was it just silent meditation? They were guided meditations, which I found that helped me to get into it easier, into meditation. And now I don't even do guided meditations. I can sit and do it by myself. What's your practice look like now? I work on myself probably about two hours a day, sometimes three hours. But my main sit that I call it is a, teach, a different teacher a couple of years ago said the best time to meditate is early in the morning when you first get up, the first thing you do as the sun is coming over the horizon, over the planet where you live. I'm up between 5 and 5.30 every day. And so I will meditate for 30, 45, 60 minutes every nice. morning. I've been doing that nonstop. And is it just silent following your breath or... What do you do typically? Since I'm running energy now, I start mm -hmm. started with the energy, doing wow. energy protocols. Yeah. Energy protocols. <laughs> so what did you say the guy's name was? Parker? Keith Parker. Yes. Okay. Does he have like a special, like, is there something unique about the type of energy work that he does and he teaches? Yes, actually he came up with his own form of energy healing. He has, okay. a, he has a great story that I know that he's writing a book about 
I've heard him tell it. It's a fantastic story. He was never into any of healing stuff, working through stuff. He was the complete opposite until something happened to him in his 20s. And he went slowly went this route, you know, started with yoga, started with craniosacral work. He just went step by step by step into things and had his own journey. And he created this energy healing modality that he now teaches. And it is extraordinary. It has completely changed my life. Can you talk about it some? Sure. He, we, energy healing is, it's a holistic modality that it's kind of, you know, it's a body, mind, spirit, where you kind of track energy blocks within your system, you know, and for me, that is the biggest relief of those repressed motions that I push down into my body, into my energy field. And it's a field first model where whatever happens to you in life happens in your energy field first. And then when it goes into your energy field, it goes into your body. So it goes down through the- when we say energy field, what are we typically talking about? How far like aura? We all have an yep. aura around yep. us. So we can see that aura because he had what's called a Kundalini awakening. So he can see the aura around people. You know, it's we have all have these auras around us. And so that's the energy field. We all have an energy field around us. And so we're working with the energy that's around us. And we work with higher source because as the energy healing practitioner, I run energy and I'm the conduit to higher source. So somebody might be thinking, what does run energy mean? Yeah. So there are hundreds of different things that we use. They're either energetics, forms of consciousness, directives. You know, I tell higher source to do this based on what a client tells me is going on with them. So I use my intuition to figure out what would be the best for them to either clear blocks or what goes on in their system. And so I use higher source to direct and use different energetics. It's a whole methodology, you know. Like, can we break down? Like, I mean, we had a great session on Friday. So you and I, we talked before about, you know, like what are some some areas that I'm, you know, do I feel like I'm having some blockages or struggling with? And I told you I'm having some like procrastination and hesitation as it relates to work stuff. So then where did you go? (laughs) I went, I did a lot of work on your central channel and -hmm. your central channel is from your crown chakra at the top of your head, Mm -hmm. all the way down to your root chakra at your perineum. And your central channel is in front of your spine. It's like the shape of a straw. And your chakras are all along your central channel. So I went to clear out a lot of stuff in your central channel to see what energy, any blocks in your central channel might lay there. So that's what we did. We did a lot of work on your central channel, did some emotional healing. But so when you're, what is the experience like for you? For me, uh, as I had mentioned, I'm more clairsentient. So I'm feeling stuff in my body. I'm, I'm feeling the energy, but I may tend to feel a lot of pain. You know, if something's happening oh, when we did our session for you, I felt a lot of left side stuff going on. Like the left side of my body was emphasized as if it was sticking out from my body. 
which was a very interesting feeling. And I felt a lot of stuff going through the heart chakra, you know, some heaviness going through the heart. And then we'd worked on your hair, Hara, H-A-R-A. And that's a main energy point in our bodies. It's near your sacral chakra. And for women, it's in front of your uterus. And for men, it's near your prostate. So it's down there in your gut between your second and third chakra. And so how can you feel when things are either like breaking apart or in out? Or how do you know when it's time to move on? I We do things that are timed. We do, you know, a work on your central channel for 20 minutes. You know, I just within a 50 minute session, uh-huh. you know, 20 minutes here, 10 minutes here, sometimes five minutes doing different things. Uh-huh. Nice. And how did you feel after? I felt tired. Yeah. But I felt lighter. I did feel lighter. So prior to you hitting your emotional butt, what was your understanding of the impact that your childhood had on you? So one of the things that interesting with the energy healing that you use in energy healing is your intuition. And I've always known since I was a very young boy that I was very intuitive. And I knew that there was something wrong in my family. Very young age. My mother tells me that my aunt took me, I'm the oldest of three, that my aunt took me when I was a baby. They they only lived a few blocks from us. So I spent most of my time at my aunt's house. And especially on the weekends, I spent like every waking moment that I could, especially on the weekends, because the weekends was like, well, something's going to happen in this house. So I knew that I had to get myself the hell out of that house. And so that's what I did most of my life. And that's that intuition that I think that we as adult children, we sense something is going on. And I'll relate that to energy healing, because in energy healing, you're using your ESP. What we all have is we all have extrasensory perception. And mine is clairsentience, that I can feel stuff. Like when I was younger, I could feel that something was off here. You mm-hmm. know, other forms of clairsentience is claircognizance. You may hear voices, you hear things, or clairvoyance, you see mm-hmm. things. You know, you become clairvoyant. So my main thing is intuition and clairsentience. Me too. I think I'm clairsentient as well. But it's interesting. Like, it's like, did we always sense that something was there? Or is it that hypervigilance that like we were forced to become so perceptive because our lives are at risk? I think both, actually. I 100% agree with what you just said, but also that I noticed when I was quite young, probably between 10 and 12. I grew up Catholic, always went to Catholic Mass every Sunday. I remember sitting there just thinking, I don't believe what they're telling me. It was just an innate thing that happened. And so I stopped paying attention. And along my journey when I is when I got into more spiritual, different spiritual practice, looking into other things. Wow, that's so interesting. So when did your parents divorce again? My parents divorced when I was 14. Okay. And what was the environment like when you were home and not at your aunt's? It was horrific. It was traumatic. As I've learned over the last few years in my awakening and healing journey, that 
the trauma that I experienced from being an adult child, an alcoholic, my mother was an active alcoholic, and she actually drank when she was pregnant with the three of us. She was 19 when she got married to my father, had me, I was the oldest, had me when she was 20. And it's just- How old was your dad again? Wasn't he like significant? My mother was 19 when they married and my father was 39. There was a 20 year age difference. And I only found out a few years ago that my mother started dating my father when she was 15 and he was 35, which is hugely Mm. inappropriate, right? And she married him to get out of her house because her father was an alcoholic and she was in love with my father's brother. Oh, yeah, that's right. And he was younger. And he was younger. Yeah. How did they go to school together? My father's brother was a little older than my father. I mean, my mother, not too close in age now. So how did she think that was going to work out? I don't know, but I do remember feeling when I was younger and she told me that somewhere between 14 and 16, she told me that after they divorced. And I remember having that feeling coming away, hearing that I wasn't born out of love. It's like, that's just so guttural, right? You know, because you think when your parents divorce, marry, they have kids and that, you know, and that's not why I was born. Yeah. Did you ever know that uncle? I did. Yes. Not very well, though. Do you think he knows that? Does he know that? No, I have no idea. He actually passed recently, and I haven't seen him in 35, 40 years. Yeah, I guess she didn't think that one through. I'm trying to think if that's probably not appropriate to tell you at 14. No, as I learned at a young age, my mother treated me as her surrogate spouse. I've heard different terms of that. um, Yeah, parentification. Yeah, parentification. And after my parents divorced when I was 14, my mother would, you know, wake me up in the middle of the night and when she was drunk and, Mm. you know, tell me a lot of stuff about my father and their sex life. You know, just it was just hugely inappropriate stuff. And that's how I, you know, became her surrogate spouse. And do you remember at the time how that made you feel? Because like for me, you know, I had that experience with my dad and that was really kind of the only time that he was very emotionally present with me. And so I don't know if I like, I think it made me feel important or I liked being in the know, but I'm curious what you're, I was thinking about Paul Gilmartin, who I had back on a couple of weeks ago and it made him feel so uncomfortable and cringy at such a young age. So was that your experience? Yeah. When you asked me that, I could feel my chest tightening up. How did I see? I was, yeah, I First of all, I didn't like to be around my mother when she was drunk. So being woken up and then you're when she's drunk and then you're being told all these hugely inappropriate things is just a lot. That's a lot for a child. When did you become aware of your mom's drinking? Very young age. I remember holidays were always the worst. You know, she there were times when there was just these massive fights either with my father or after they divorced or with her boyfriend. I remember my mother was a kind of a crazy drunk, a really, you know, really off the wall drunk. You know, the Christmas tree coming down, us having to wrap our own presents in the middle of the night, you know, while she lay in bed drunk. It was just constant drama or trauma going on as a child. And so I did everything that I could to get out of there. You know, like I said, going to my aunt's house and I would bribe my brother and sister when we were younger, if they wanted to stay the weekend at my aunt's house. 
and I would bribe them so that I could, so I would not have to stay there. Oh, so they would come with you, you mean? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I would bribe them. Like if one of them wanted to, that meant I couldn't go over to spend the night. So I would. Oh, only yeah. one of you could go. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. Was your aunt aware of what was going on? I think my family knew what was going on. There's alcoholism in both sides of my family. They were well aware. What about, were you a protector to your siblings? Yes. As the oldest, I became the protector. I spoke up a lot, you know, if there were fights with my mother and sister or my mother and my brother. And I believe that's where I learned how to people please as well. You know, you have to... Mm. My mother was drunk or hungover, you know, I'd call in sick to work for her, you know, like do those things and all the way to please her to try to get love, right? What do you feel like were some of your earlier like coping mechanisms or ways that you dissociated like as a teenager? When I was young, I was extremely creative. I sang, I was in choir, I danced, I did arts and crafts. I was in all the school plays, like everything. That's how I learned, I believe, to cope was through creativity, which is a great way to to learn to cope, right? But when things got really bad, I kind of squelched all that until I was a teenager. Then I kind of focused more on becoming an actor. Okay. And then when did you come out? I came out at 18. I knew that I was gay when I was five years old. And I think really? that also, yeah, I knew that I was different, but I could, you know, I didn't know what it was. You know, even my mother, when she would wake me up to tell me about my father, she, she, my mother is the first one who told me that she thought my father might have been gay. And looking mm-hmm. at it, 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 you know, it might make sense. He was the oldest of six, the last one to get married, never anyone before my mother or after. And he had a very hard time with me coming out where I had to cut off contact with him. I came out to him when I was 22, right after I moved to San Francisco from Massachusetts. We would communicate through letter writing. And he started sending me these horrific letters in magazine articles because it was the height of AIDS, you know, in 1988, 89. You're saying, God hates me. I'm going to die. You know, just all this hateful stuff. And I had to cut off contact with them for three or four years. What was that experience like of being in San Francisco during that time? There was a lot of death around. There was a lot of fear still, but there was still a lot of joy because, you know, the community came together to support each other, right? And so you're young, you're in your 20s, you want to have experiences of life, you're free, you're, you know, I'm living across country. So it was a magical time because you're in your 20s. But it was also I was just filled with so much fear that I was so afraid anything that I would do sexually that I was going to get AIDS, right? Mm-hmm. And at that time, you know, you, you, you get an AIDS, HIV test, And you'd have to wait two weeks, you know, and that went on for maybe 10, 20 years before they, you know, fixed the testing. Yeah. I mean, like when was that like at the peak of deaths was like that then or a little bit earlier in the 80s? I know there was more deaths in the peak of the 80s. I think they say the height of AIDS was maybe 92. Oh, wow. Around 92. Yeah. Yeah. What was so interesting that I learned was that there was a lot of animosity between the 
gay community and the lesbian community prior to the AIDS crisis. And that, that I just hear this from like being in AA meetings, especially, but the, how that really brought the communities together and that they, you know, then saw themselves as kind of part of the same tribe. Yeah. So the lesbians stepped up they yeah. took care of, you know, their friends. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Not cool, but thinking of it, you know, like can I came out in 1985, right after I graduated high school, you know, kind of the beginning of AIDS. And so I've lived my entire life in a pandemic, you know, mm. I'm living in, toward in my second one. Interesting I, thing, you know, and, I, and no one had I realized as we were going through the beginning of the pandemic, no one was asking gay men, of course, what does this feel like? Yeah, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about how that would increase one's fear. I never yeah. thought about it. That makes sense. Yeah. It's like they finally came out with prep and then there's COVID. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who did you come out to first? My sister. Uh-huh. And what was that experience like? It was fine. You know, you know were I were you nervous? I I wasn't really, no. I kind of relate my coming out experience to, you know, a lot of people, if you hear their coming out stories, they might be later in life. Mm -hmm. They felt that they had to hide. Mine was kind of the opposite. There was no way that I was going to hide myself. It was like, there was just no way that was going to happen for me. Because it was so obvious or because you weren't going to? <laughs> I think kind of both. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just was not something I was going to keep hidden which I think is about the person, the nature of the person. Absolutely. And then your sister came out. And then my sister came out, yeah. How many years later? Oh, maybe 10 years later. She has a very interesting story. She's in recovery, which is fantastic. But I'm not sure if it would be appropriate to tell her story, but she has a very interesting story how she came out. Yeah. Cliffhanger. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and then what was your mom's reaction? My mother wasn't surprised. My mother's co-worker, she had a gay friend. She wasn't surprised, but he saw me in a bar with the guy I was dating. Uh -huh. so he told my mother and, but it was, you know, it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a big traumatic thing. But my mother kind of, one of the effects of my mother drinking while pregnant as the oldest, we were all born with something wrong with us on the left side. Mm. And me, myself, I was born with an undescended testicle on my left side, which is fairly common. And when I was five, I had an operation to lower uh -huh. it down. And my mother told me when all that was happening, when I was born and when I had to have the operation at five, she distinctly remembers asking the doctors, will this make him gay? Wow. <laughs> They're like, yep. <laughs> They're like, yep. Is the left side, is that a thing or was that just a coincidence? Well, I think it's part of probably fetal alcohol syndrome. It is very interesting that we were all born with something on the left side. But in somatic stuff with your body, you know, your right side is the male side of your body and the left side is your female side of your body. So, you know, somatically and trying to look at that body-wise or energetic-wise and how you were born and what things matter, like, that's interesting. Mm, All on our left side. That is interesting. So why don't you talk about hitting this bottom? But prior to that, I guess my question is, do you feel like 
this was trauma that was laying under the surface that kind of, you know, that was repressed that came up? Or was this something that you feel like was impacting your life like significantly that you had just been, you know, trying to ignore? I think kind of both, but I think most of it was repressed. One of the good things that my mother did after she got sober, she got sober when I was 16. Oh, wow. That's amazing. She got picked up for drunk driving. And at that time, my mother's boyfriend, who she moved into the house, he also was an alcoholic. And they would just have these horrendous fights. And my mother would ship me and my sister off to my aunts and my father off to my brother for a week while you know, they dealt with whatever they needed to deal with. And that last time I said, no, I'm not coming home. I asked my mm. aunt if I could stay with her. And she had three kids at the time. And she said, yes. And, but after that, I remember my mother putting us into family counseling. Okay. Don't mean call for how long, but I think that might've did something to me because I started going to therapy in my twenties and I started Al-Anon in my twenties because I was, you know, having relationships with alcoholics all during my twenties. So my journey of healing kind of started early and actually the Shortly after I moved to San Francisco, I'll never forget this. I went to see a tarot card reader and I was explaining about my childhood being, you know, my mother was an alcoholic, da da da, da and moving. I'm going to my aunt's house every weekend and knowing that I wanted to get away. And she said, Oh, God bless you. You knew that you had to heal at a young age. Mm. Like me knowing, using that intuition to get out of my house was part of me healing myself which I've always held on to. I've always remembered that story. That's so interesting. So when you started going to therapy in your 20s, it was mostly to deal with your alcoholic relationships? Yes. I don't know anything about that. I was very codependent, you know, in my relationships. And it wasn't until I had many failed relationships in my 20s. And the last one from 28 to 30, it wasn't until then a therapist told me, you're probably trying to heal the relationship with your mother through the men in your life. And it was like, ding, 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 ding. Yeah. And do you feel like you were able to work through some of those issues? I believe that I was able to really work through my codependency. I went to Al-Anon for seven years in my 20s. It was going into therapy, individual therapy off and on, especially after relationships ended because I was just devastated. Yes, yes. And then my last relationship between 28 and 30, I went into group therapy which I stayed uh-huh. for seven years and I actually loved group therapy a lot. Was it specifically for codependency? No, it was just an adult coping thing, you know, where uh-huh. you bring your issues into the group therapy and you learn how to communicate and stop reacting, you know, and I learned a lot in that group. Do you have any specific like key memories from that? I do. I learned a lot about my reactions how I reacted to people that instead of reacting, that I could come from a place of more empathy and compassion. And, mm. you know, though I didn't really learn that, I learned it. In a- <laughs> you became aware of it, but I didn't really do anything about it. it long time. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's talk about your emotional butt. Yes. I had many in my 20s, but it wasn't until, really wasn't until 2020. 
I started working for the federal government right out of high school because my family, you know, we grew up poor. I wanted to go to college to be an actor and study acting, but no, there was no guidance. I was kind of, my family was like, there was no communication or you want to go to college, let's do that. Like, I didn't know what to do. There was no emotional support there. So my mother worked for the government. So she got me to take the test, civil service test in the 80s. So that's how I started working for the federal government. And then government. they like, they place you based off that? Is that how it would work? Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so that's how I started, you know, my career in the government. And for 28 of those years, I worked for the Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA. And in 2014, things started to take a turn. And I ended up filing a discrimination lawsuit, an EEO lawsuit, and I became a whistleblower. And I'll just leave it at that. It's a big story, still going on from what I'm told, but the retaliation from that was immense. For five years, it was just immense. And that last year in 2019, I was really hanging on by a thread. And I was on vacation over the holidays and they were still retaliating me while I was on vacation. And what's something that happens to me so often in life, when I know that I've had enough, I will either feel and or hear a click go off. And that's what happened to me in 2019. Really? In the 2019, where I said, I have to leave this job. I have to quit or I'm going to die. If I don't leave here, I'm going to die. Because I was having panic attacks at that time. And I had never had a panic attack in my life. And it scared the hell out of me. And I ended up quitting my job in January of 2020, right before the pandemic started. And my goal was to take a year off. I was going to live off my 401k. Thank God that I had a 401k. And it was actually one of the relationships I had in my 20s because I didn't know anything about finances. The boyfriend I had at the time, like, yeah, you need to start doing this. The government's matching this. You make a lot of money. I'm like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And so I stay doing that, right? And so I'm like, I can live off of this money. And I ended up quitting my job. And that's when I hit my emotional bottom at that time. And what came up for you? I realized during that five years, I had always asked myself, why is all this happening to me? What is this? Why am I going through all this drama and work? I don't understand. I'm like doing a good thing. I'm standing up for myself. I'm standing up for the minorities that I worked with. Like, I don't, I I knew from all my spiritual work and all the work I've done throughout my life that to ask that question, what, what am I learning from this? Why is this happening? Because I knew there was a bigger reason, but I could never come up with an answer until after I quit my job and started meditating and got into it, that I had to work on my abandoned issues, on my core wounds, that I had to finally confront it. Because I had learned that all the work that I did in therapy, all the work I did in group therapy, all the work that I did in Al-Anon, I spiritually bypassed everything. And I never went to work to my inner child, go to my inner child, and do inner child work and go Mm. to that core wound. And so I've been able to do that the last few years with energy healing. 
that's and which I didn't actually expect for that to happen. I just said, let me because I was curious. I'm like, let me just see where this takes me. Yeah. So I know for you, the biggie is the fear of abandonment. And so how was that manifesting in your life? The main thing was, and it's all come full circle in the last year for me, I didn't really realize I was a people pleaser, but it's the people pleasing. My main thing around the abandonment is if I tell you how I feel, you're going to leave me. So I stuffed down all my feelings. You know, if friends did anything, I wouldn't really push it. I would just be the good boy because when you learn how to that codependency and to be the good person and not cause any problems. You know, I became a perfectionist too. You know, that comes out in my perfectionism, um, wanting things perfect, to be the good boy so everyone will like me and everyone will love me. Mm. And that's why, how I became a people pleaser. You know, I would do that for my mother, you know, like call in sick for work, do what you needed to do. You learn that so there won't be any drama. When you reflect back on your childhood, specifically on if I tell people how I really feel, they'll leave me. What does that bring you to? I can't really relate that to childhood, which is an interesting question. I have Mm -hmm. asked myself that, but because in my family, we, you know, there was no emotional support, you know, between my father or my mother, you know, you didn't get to have feelings. Feelings weren't talked about. Emotions weren't talked about. And for the most part, they still aren't in a way. You know, so you don't learn how to process emotions. So Mm -hmm. you you learn how to stuff them all down. Mm -hmm. So if you speak up, you're told you're wrong. Shut up. Don't be a crybaby. You know, I think it comes out in those ways. So you just learn not to speak up for yourself. When your dad moved out, did you have much of a relationship with him? I didn't, actually. One of the biggest healings of my life occurred this past December, which I wrote about in my blog, healing my abandonment issues through my inner child, healing my inner child through my abandonment issues. I recall when my parents got divorced when I was 14, my mother sitting us all down because my father filed a custody suit against my mother. And my mother asking us, who do you want to live with? And I was so afraid to say, my father, I said, you. And I didn't want to live with my mother. Mm. I wanted to live with my father. And I was just so afraid. And I think that's kind of actually what you were meaning with the question where I learned that was if I speak up and say how I really feel, you'll leave me. So I was Mm. so afraid of my mother leaving me in a way But then my father didn't rescue me. I so wanted my father to rescue me. Was he sitting there when your mom asked you that? I don't believe that he was. I can't recall. I don't have a vision of that. And I kind of don't believe that he was. But I became so angry with my dad that because I just didn't feel that he fought for us or didn't fight Mm. for me. And he got into kind of a depression after where I didn't see him that much. And I didn't want to go to his new home. I was so angry that I just took myself away from him for a while and just went to my aunt's house as much as I could. Yeah, I'm sure he was just scared to death of your mom. Yeah. And you know, after my mother got sober, one of the things my mother readily admitted, you kids should have been taken away from me. So I'd like for you to talk more about like your breed of energy healing. And I'm curious 
how, cause it's mostly through the chakras, but how has the inner child work played into that? Probably one of the main things that happened for me early on and mm -hmm. related to my abandonment things was the, I never knew where my abandonment issues originated. I'm working on this right now on a blog for this, because this was one of the main things that happened to me early on in my training. Because when I was studying in the first year of energy healing, I was also studied shamanism. And uh, a lot of women in the group were talking about stuff that happened while they were in their mother's womb. And so I started playing with that in my mind because knowing that my mother drank, right? And I never really knew where this feeling of abandonment originated. Was it something that happened to me at a certain age? Was it five, six, seven? And I just could never figure that out because I always, after everything that I went through, I just went through this feeling like, I'm just going to have to live with this feeling of abandonment just somehow. And when I allowed myself to entertain the thoughts of something happened to me while in the womb, that first big energetic release came. Yes, my abandonment issues originated in the womb mm. because my mother drank, right? Mm. So I, you can mm. imagine going back as yourself as a fetus in the womb being fed alcohol and what is happening to that fetus, right? Like you could just imagine arms and legs kicking everywhere, maybe trying to get out, running away, like if you will, running away, right? That Okay, and that's when I had the first big energetic release regarding my abandonment issues with my mother. Wow. Yeah. That's so profound. Yeah. I mean, have you read Mark Wolin's book? No. It didn't start with you. Really good. It's all yeah. about that attachment trauma, those attachment wounds. Which we what all go through, right? Birth itself is a traumatic experience, right? And we all have probably some form of abandonment from being born, right? So when I had the biggest healing back in December, I was having a conflict with my best friend and yep. my worst nightmare came true, you know, told him how I felt and he left, you know, we turned everything. I felt like he manipulated me and emotionally hijacked me. And so when that happened, I didn't fall apart. You know, my biggest nightmare had come true, but I didn't fall apart. And what that did for me was his emotionally unavailability triggered my father's emotionally unavailability to me, where I went back to the, my 14-year-old inner child, that abandonment from my father, where it, and it, I carry everything in my guts. I mean, I, I was going through this thing. I took a walk in the park and things were like, going step by step for me. And I started crying and everything was just felt like it was falling apart with my relationships, friends moving. I just started crying and I came home, I took a bath and I was crying and I sat down still feeling this heaviness. And I started to write in my journal and I turned it into a letter to my father. And I was just recalling all the horrible things he said and did and some of the good things. And when I got to 14, is when I just became hysterical for like 30 minutes and I was double mm. in pain, holding my gut, coming out of my nose, choking. And that's when I went to the 14-year-old boy, my 14-year-old inner child. 
that I had never gone to. That was all that heaviness that I was feeling. But I didn't really know that. I always was aware that episode in my life at 14 with my parents happened, but I never knew that it carried that much weight and energy in my system until I went went through all that. It's like, wow, I was able to release that energy that was built up in my body, in my energy field, and in my gut, that that got released from me. And it's, it's been a process since then. It's still, you know, things I still notice things happen, but things just turned around for me months after that, that episode that I was able to release that energy within me, because that's what those are unprocessed emotions, right? You know, no uh, feeling that as a 14 year old that I'm feeling abandoned, you know, I have to make this decision to stuff all that down. Mm -hmm. Never came up in therapy. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so interesting when you're talking about, you know, asking yourself with the work stuff, like, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And then you think about this situation that you had with your friends Mm -hmm. that like allowed you to deal with those wounds. Yeah. Because I had, once I started speaking up, People don't like it when you speak up, when you're acting different than how you normally do, you know, that I'm no longer this people pleaser, that I'm speaking up and asserting my boundaries, because that was the other thing I learned. My boundaries were horrible. And that was my naivety as well, going through the journey that I've been on the last few years, that I knew that I had to heal these core wounds of abandonment. But I naively thought that all my relationships were secure because I've had mm. long time friends here in San Francisco for 20, 30 years. And going through this process has just revealed to me that how naive I was about that, that they weren't secure. And most of it is because of my lack of boundaries and just letting things go. Yeah, it's shitty, though. Yeah. It's really painful. Very painful. Yeah, I've had some painful friendship breakups. And I think, too, I've just realized not necessarily my lack of boundaries, but I found that the deeper I go and the more and I'm sure that this it. Yeah, it's the same thing for you, too. It's like the more that we become our true selves, that makes other people really fucking uncomfortable. Absolutely. And after expounding on that situation that I mentioned just a minute ago with my friend. After I had that releasing episode and that crying, I started getting these downloads and insights happened where I realized that every single adult friend in my life was unemotionally available to me. Mm. Set that up probably to deal with the relationship with my father that I had neatly tucked away because he was completely unemotionally available to me. And like, oh my God, look what I've done. Yeah, and it's crazy too, because it's like, these are like, I mean, for you, these are like decade-long relationships. Yeah, it makes you question everything, huh? Yes, yes. But this is what I needed to go through, you know? It's all good, because it's the person that you're meant to be, I hopefully, is coming out on the other side. Yeah, and it's opening up space for the right relationships to come in. But kind of that waiting period can be a little bit lonely sometimes. Yeah, I totally relate to that so much. It's interesting. And then you reflect on, I don't know, because it sounds like to me, like, you know, you were in a, it's like a group, you know, it was kind of like a group of friends that all hung together. But I realized too, as well, that I had in that group of friends, that immediate circle of friends, I allowed myself a safety within them as well. Mm -hmm. It's another insight that came out of this, that 
I needed that safety. That's one of my big things with the fear of the abandonment stuff is that you need security, right? As adult mm -hmm. children, I think we need security. It's not, not something I never had growing up. So I created that security in this group of friends in my my life here in San Francisco and that family circle of friends. And so that inner circle, there were things that were going on that I noticed like in some of their drinking that I just let be okay as well, where it really wasn't. And just to feel safe. Yeah. Somebody's better than nobody. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is, you're doing the same shit. It's just not with romantic. It's just with friendships. It's the same yeah. thing. And then you realize how fucking unfulfilling the relationships actually are. Yes. Mm. And I, what really, where I came to a head with all that too, is because I went through, all my friends knew what I was going through in my work situation for five years, but that's all I ever talked about. And after it ended and I would see them, there were these long-term friends who never once asked me, how are you doing with all that? How are you feeling? Yeah, and I, that's when I realized these are people pleasing. These are one-sided relationships. What am I doing? I mean, just ask me, how am I feeling? How are you doing? And I've really had to come to terms with that. What are you doing, John? Here are these mm -hmm. people. Well, what's going on? You know, and they can only meet me where they are in life, where their emotional capabilities are. Do you feel like you've grieved those relationships, or is still in the process? Yes, it does come up every now that grief is an ongoing yeah. process. And, you know, it does come up just the other day where it was because it was we had a beautiful 80 degree weather here. I was like, oh, this is the day we would have, you know, gone and to the park and had a picnic with these friends and they're not there. So, you know, just sit with that grief, feel it, mm -hmm. let it pass. And it does pass and, you know, don't stuff it down. You know, so that's how I deal with it now. Just become aware of it let it pass. Were there any other pivotal downloads that you had that you haven't mentioned? I was just thinking from reading your blogs, if there was anything else that I was thinking of. What about this? Talk about the self-abandonment piece. Yeah, but that was the one of the final pieces. I don't know if you, because I recently went back to Instagram and I don't know if this happens for you, but sometimes if I just read a post from somebody, you know, a psychologist or someone who does all this type of work, they'll say something like, oh, yes. And I had seen a post by Terry Cole, who talks mm -hmm. about and I love her podcast and her work. And she posted this postcard about self-abandonment. And I realized when I read that, my whole body became at ease. Whereas like, that's what I've been doing my entire life around all my relationships with my family by not speaking up having lack of boundaries is just me self-abandoning myself. And mm -hmm. just to know that, like turned it around in a way that because I can feel that I'm not doing that anymore now, you know, which I think is a lot of it is to do with the energy work that I've been doing on myself, just releasing a lot of it that I do have a right to have boundaries and stand up for myself. My feelings are valid. And where you're reparenting your inner child. And so that's what I've been doing a lot of is that reparenting and not being aware of to self-abandon when things arise. It's a big, yeah. big piece. I know. It's like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Have you noticed 
as of late, like, are there particular things that you notice that do trigger you or social situations or anything? Like, what is it that you feel like you're working on now? You know, I, a lot of that I've gone through the past few years, just realizing how anxious that I actually was. And I never really thought I was an anxious person. You know, I have always known that I don't like big crowds. You know, I don't like small talk. If you're at a function and you have small talk, I'm not a small talk person. I feel very uncomfortable. That's when you grab a drink, right? To, you know, to feel comfortable in those situations. And a lot of uh, realizing that is because I like to be authentic with people. I mm -hmm. want to have a conversation where we can be authentic with each other, where I don't have to do that small talk stuff. It's just not comfortable to me. So I'm realizing a lot of those situations that are anxiety laden for me that, and really how much anxiety that I have had throughout my whole life because I've normalized. <laughs> have you had any run-ins with any of those friends since all that happened? No. no. It'll happen eventually. Unless yeah, they move. Absolutely. I will. But it's okay. Like it really it's okay. It honestly, it feels like it needed to happen. I have zero regrets about it. I have zero regrets about it, you know, because I took another step for me in my journey. You know, now I understand when you all these years, because this has taken me over 40 years of working on myself and then just thinking that I'm going to have to live with it. And then after 40 years of feeling this stuff and releasing it, now I understand when people say, that your wounds become your greatest teachers. Abandonment issues and my friends have become my greatest teachers. What, because this might be something interesting for listeners. What did it sound like when you did start to speak up and say how you felt? Like, what did you say? The run-in that I had with my friend, and it was over email in December. Mm. Good old email. <laughs> but I, I did it intentionally, both for me and because I knew that he had this feeling uh, well, you can get a lot out in email because I had other interactions with friends that were coming up that I shared with him that were happening over email. But I realized through that where my, if I tell you how I feel, you're going to leave me. Oh, that has just run course through my whole life. Because 20 years ago, we had an interaction where he had sent me by mistake an email talking about talking bad about me with a friend of his, you know, using the C word and about, and I didn't realize and I stuffed all that down just to move forward in the relationship to be the good guy that I realized 20 years ago, he did the same thing as he just did to me now where I felt emotionally hijacked and, and manipulated mm. me where everything became about me. 20 years ago, he did the same thing. Well, but what I did by stuffing that all down, I was I'd be out walking down the street and I'd see him coming up the street and he'd run into a bar to hide from me. Or I'd walk into a bar and he was there and he'd run away. He had no problem coming to my house every two weeks to play poker at my house, you know, but it was me. I'm the one who never said anything it's like who does that? And I just had to really come to terms like, what are you doing, John? I held on for that for 20 years just to be the good guy, you know, make you feel better. I stuffed all that down. Like, who does that? Uh, like everybody listening right now? <laughs> like, what are you doing, John? No, that is not good behavior.
So do you feel like since those experiences, have you been able to show up in friendships and other in new ways? Yes, I'm I've recently I had this other friend that just like he can hold space for you, but then he uses what you say as a weapon, as a joke and become mean about it. And I had been talking to him about his meanness for years, like, just be nice. And so I just, instead of getting into drama, I just walked away. I'm just like, I'm just walking away from experiences or people that no longer see my worth. Well, where can people find you? Work? How can they, what, what, how can they work with you? You can visit my website. Visit Johnergy. Johnergy, J-O-H-N-E-G-E-R-G-Y, Johnergy Healing. Or on Instagram, I'm, I left Instagram for over five years. So I'm rebuilding on Instagram. I'm there. I'm starting to do some content there and writing in my blog. And my blog is giving me stuff to do content. So, so that's good. And if anyone has any questions, feel free to reach out to me, DM me if you'd like a free consultation on energy healing to, you know, get into those deep wounds and, you know, remove those blocks that what I never knew in my whole life that energy brought me were those instances that I was aware of that happened to me as a child, but I didn't even know until I confronted them as an adult by opening that space in myself with energy healing, how much weight and how much I pushed down Mm -hmm. that those events replayed into my life, that you've got to go to that inner child stuff to release that energy. Well, thank you so much. This has been so awesome. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. I love your podcast. I love your prodding deep questions and the back and forth. I just love it because story is important, right? Our stories are important and it's important to talk about them. It's just not, it's important not to let them define us, right? We can get beyond this stuff. I Mm -hmm. feel that I can get beyond these feelings and issues and this abandonment now. 